Sigmund Freud, who is considered the father of modern-day psychoanalysis in a book called Civilization and Discontent, made this observation. He said, through the technological control of nature, we have fulfilled most of the desires past societies have projected into imagined gods. We have become like gods. Why then are we not happy? And his wonderfully simple answer was, I don't know. But because he doesn't know, doesn't mean there aren't answers. Uh, Blaise Pascal, a famous Christian thinker, made this observation. He said, all men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. Yet all men complain. (laughs) A test which has gone on so long, without pause or change, really ought to convince us that we are incapable of attaining the good by our own efforts. This infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite object. And we've been focusing upon that infinite object in this series of three messages. We've been learning that uh, happiness, which is tied to this very elusive hope, can only become enduring if we begin to participate in what the Bible calls the living hope. And we learned from the scriptures that that living hope was tied to an imperishable inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven. And that if we are to experience that living hope in the midst of the vicissitudes of life, we have to grasp a hold of this imperishable inheritance. But instead of that, we have all kinds of fuzzy ideas floating around in our mind about heaven. We looked at three of them in particular. We thought that we, most of us think heaven is boring because it's an unending worship service. I'm going to come back to that later on in the service tonight, today. Uh, we also have childish pictures of heaven. In fact, one lady on the way out, an adult herself, and a mature Christian told me, she said, I had this idea that I'd be sitting somewhere in a room with white clouds all around me. So it's fairly prevalent. And then, of course, this whole idea that, that heaven is non-physical, non-corporeal, and that doesn't somehow excite us when we know this world that is both physical and our bodies that are physical in that process. So we've slowly been trying to correct these errors. In our first message we learned that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ through which we become participators in this living hope. His resurrection life and his bodily resurrection experiences afterwards indicate to us that our existence in heaven will be corporate in nature. That we will share in the resurrection of Jesus. And our bodies will not only be continuous in some ways with these present bodies but will be gloriously more so than that. And we use sanctified imagination to just kind of look at what that might be like. And then last week we saw that exactly the same thing is true in parallel. Earth is not a doomed planet headed for destruction. But that when you and I enter into that glorious resurrection state, that all of creation will be redeemed along with it. And that the new heavens and the new earth, a marriage of heaven and earth as opposed to a divorce of them, will result in a glorious earth that is both continuous with the present earth and yet have unimaginably more. Perhaps we looked at how other dimensions might be involved. We try to get uh, a handle on that. And we saw also that when that happens, we will finally fulfill what God began in Genesis 1, Project Earth. That in gloriously resurrected bodies, we will rule and subdue this new creation for the benefit of humanity, for the joy of creation, and for the glory of God. And what I want to talk about today is that when we fulfill those destinies, we will experience joy. And in this final message in this brief series, I want to talk about the subject. And by the way, I'm going to be using more than my normal share of quotations because in three messages I could hardly scratch the surface of this topic. And I want to encourage you to read. So I've also put out a reading list of about nine or ten of the best books on this subject. 
and I've arranged them in order of increasing difficulty. So you can start with the easiest one and work your way down as well. So you can pick that up too as well. All right. Once again, we're going to kind of use earth as a starting point and use our imaginations to get some sense of what this joy in heaven. We all talk about it, but what is it? Uh, And there's kind of four things that I want to talk about today. And there's many, many more, but these are four to begin with. Uh, All of us experience something called nostalgia. We periodically talk about going back home. We long for the good old days. I, from my, I, I didn't live in North America in the 50s. I was growing up as a teenager, and so my understanding of North American life in the 50s was usually from the back of the comic books that I used to read. You know? And it looked pretty good to me anyway. And people here tell me they were good days. The post-war economy was in a boom. Uh, homes were largely stable, two-family homes. Uh, The biggest problems in schools was how to get your students to be polite to the teachers. Drugs and metal detectors and guns were really not the issue at that time. When you went to movies, there was no gratuitous sex and violence and swearing. Political leaders were known for their character as well as their abilities to speak. I wouldn't be like to go back to those days. I would. (laughs) We want to go back. We, we, We have the sense of wanting to go back home. And find peace. Nostalgia is a part of our experience on earth. But along with that, we also experience boredom. And so we want novelty. We want newness as well. We want progress. And of course, both of these things pull us in opposite directions. We get tired of the same old, same old thing. Heaven. One of the joys of heaven will be a perfect blending and the simultaneous satisfaction of what nostalgia is looking for and what novelty is looking for. Mark Buchanan, who's a wonderful writer, and his book is on there, says this. So, so these quotes are easy to follow, but a little bit long, but I want you to follow with me. We are born with two impulses. They jostle each other from the womb to the grave. They make us constantly restless, anxious, weary, and cranky. The first impulse is to go beyond. We seek novelty. We hunger for new beginnings. We crave discovery, conquest, adventure. This atrophies eventually into escapism because we don't get what we're looking for. The second impulse is to go home. It is to recapture some unspoiled origins, some unchanging sameness. We cherish the familiar. We seek safety, serenity, to find again that which we've lost. And since we don't find it, this calcifies into nostalgia. On earth, not only do these impulses war against one another, but neither impulse is ever satisfied. The impulse to go beyond makes us feel perpetually bound. With every new step forward we take towards the horizon, the further away it moves. And the impulse to go home makes us feel perpetually exiled. Home is forever elusive. F.W. Borum, an Australian essayist, once wrote a brilliant essay called Going Back to Dixie. It's only when you go back to Dixie you find it's not Dixie anymore. We return to the place where we grew up, but we don't see whatever it is we were looking for. It's gone. And then, why will we not be bored in heaven? Because it's the one place where both impulses to go beyond and to go home are perfectly joined and totally satisfied. And this brilliant summary. It's the one place where we are constantly discovering where everything is always fresh and the possessing of a thing is as good as the pursuing of it. And yet where we are fully at home. Where everything is as it ought to be and where we find undiminished that mysterious something we never found on here, and probably an amazingly brilliant sentence, the awe of deep satisfaction and the aha of delighted surprise meet and they kiss. What would that be like? We can only guess. Heaven. 
And the reason why heaven can do that, you see, nostalgia looks backward in time, novelty looks forward in time, eternity encompasses all of time and is able to simultaneously satisfy both of those desires. One glimpse of the joy of heaven when ah and aha meet together. A second dimension is another balance and that is a blending of work and rest. I told you last week that one of the consequences of first humans rebelling against God, using their free will to rebel against God and to exercise their independence of Him was the entrance of death through this fundamental attitude of sin. As Charlene reminded us, she lived independently of God. Whether that's the religious exterior or not is beside the point. And when death came into this world, not only were human beings experiencing internal alienation of all kinds, alienation with one another, which is why we need marriage courses, and conflict resolution skills, but also alienation from nature. Nature became, in Darwin's famous phrase, red in tooth and claw. And work was no longer that unmixed joy that it was supposed to be. A man by the name of Studs Terkel uh, did some research, and he wrote a book called Working, which was just a record of interviews with ordinary men and women on what they did and how they felt about what they did. And Arth Guinness in his book, The Call, summarizes his findings. He says, most people live somewhere between a grudging acceptance of their job and an active dislike of it. But a recurring theme in the interviews is yearning for a sense of meaning that overarches work and career. And this is, just lest you think this all applies just to the assembly line types, they interviewed some, what we would call, high, um, artistic uh, white-collar workers. And a woman by the name of Nora Watson, who was a writer in Philadelphia, she said this, as part of the interviews. Jobs are not big enough for people. It's not just the assembly line worker whose job is too small for his spirit. A job like mine, and she's a creative writer, she says, a job like mine, if you really put your spirit into it, you would sabotage it immediately. My mind has been so divorced from my job, except as a source of income, it's really absurd. Now, there are exceptions, of course. But the fact of the matter is, most of us can identify with this kind of struggle with work. The broad consequence of the fall is this alienation when it comes to our work. On the other hand, no work at all is also not satisfying. A good friend of mine lives in another city, uh, was recently let go uh, from from a senior position in a large, well-known company. It was through no fault of his own. The company became aware of that and therefore gave him a really, really good settlement which allowed him, and he was a wise man, he spent, used that to spend a lot of his time with his family and young family and children, but recently he was saying, well, I'm getting bored, I've got to work again. So here again, just like the balance, the pull between nostalgia and novelty is the frustration with work on the one hand and the boredom of not working on the other hand. Mark Buchanan again talks about how one of heaven's joys as we fulfill our destiny is to blend these two things perfectly. And he asks us to go through an imagination exercise, and it's easy to do, so I want you to don't just read, I want you to actually do this with me. Imagine a time when you did good work. You were exhilarated. You had a euphoric sense of breakthrough and accomplishment. You felt an honest pride in a task well done. You were thankful and humble all at once. You experienced community. Others gave heart and soul to the work. You needed each other, and you told each other so. How many can ever remember feeling that way? Okay, good number of you. Now imagine a perfect time of good rest. You felt completely relaxed and restored. No worries troubled your waking or your sleeping. You had nothing you had to do and were free to do anything you chose to do. The tenseness and tiredness you knew vanished. 
You began to think clearly, pray freely, play joyfully. You enter deeply into fellowship and worship. You experience shalom, the flourishing, recreative vitality of God's breath moving through you. Maybe a few of us, but how many of us have felt that at times? And now, here's the beauty of heaven. He says, now imagine those two things joined seamlessly together and the whole never fading. Joy, heaven. The perfect blending of satisfying work and shalom rest at the same time. And why can heaven do that? Because there in gloriously resurrected bodies, in a resurrected earth, we will be fulfilling our destiny to rule and subdue creation for the benefit of humanity and the glory of God. The third dimension of the joy of heaven is not so much a balance between extremes that pull us in opposite directions as much as the joy of continued learning. Uh, A Gallup survey showed that 18% of people thought that we would not be growing intellectually in heaven. Nothing could be further from the truth. Let me give you some dimensions of what this learning might involve. First of all, it involves new perspectives on earth to begin with. Randy Alcorn in his book on heaven talks about a time when he was speaking at a church and a woman came up to him afterwards and she said, do you remember being on an airplane ride where you gave a, a young college student a copy of your book, Deadline? Deadline was a fictional novel he'd written. Well, you know, that's not easy to remember if you're traveling a lot. But as a result of a few more questions and conversations, Alcon was actually able to place that conversation. And he said, yeah, I remember. I remember this conversation with a young fellow who was on his way to college, leaving home for the first time. They had a conversation about Jesus. He gave him the book deadline, prayed with him, and they got on the plane. And well, that was it. How often do you get to hear the end of stories like that? Well, this woman said, well, you don't know what happened afterwards. Let me tell you. She said, he got to his dorm, unpacked, opened your book, couldn't put it down till the end. And at the end of that book, he gave his life to Jesus. And she said, he's one of the most dynamic Christians that I have met. Now, Alcorn says, how often do we have the... And you know what that feels like? I can just imagine, because this, this past week, something like that happened to me, where an individual shared something about a previous encounter that he and I had had. That was the furthest thing that I could ever have imagined was true. For, uh, for a few moments, I felt joy that you could not explain. You know what that is? That is a perspective on earth that sometimes you get on earth, but you will get it in heaven all the time. You will look back upon earth and you will say, Oh, now I see. Just like Charlene said last week, one, losing one child, yes, but losing two. And then she said, but God is sovereign and I know that one day I will understand. She's absolutely right. That's one kind of learning that's going to happen. New perspectives on a journey that we look back upon. And whenever we have that, they bring us joy. Especially when we see purpose and fruit. A second dimension of learning was driven home to me recently. My nephew came and spent four or five days with us. My wife's sister's son. He had he spent the last two years in Oxford. Uh, connected with my brother-in-law Ravi's organization. Studying apologetics and traveling. And a traveling companion to the UA, uh, brilliant apologist in the United, uh, United Kingdom. And he was saying, Uncle Sundar, I discovered that I learn best when I hear a lecture or read something and then I engage in a discussion with five or six of my colleagues. We talk a lot. You know what? I think there's going to be a lot of that kind of learning in heaven. We will not only be a radiant community, but an intelligent community. But here's the, here's the beautiful thing about it is none of the things that get in the way on earth will be present. First of all, nobody will share truth to impress the other person, which goes on a lot here. Because there will be no need to impress anybody. Secondly, all of the barriers to learning will be gone. Here when people are speaking, most people aren't listening. They're just waiting for that gap so they can jump in and say what they want to say. We all know that. But not here. There we will listen carefully because we are so eager to learn. 
There will be no hidden agendas. There's only one agenda. Teaching and learning for the blessing of one another. And there will be no false humility. (laughs) Because those who know more are so completely aware that everything they have that came from God, they have only one reason for wanting to share with everybody else. They love the other people so much that they want them to grow. And those who know less will have no trouble at all accepting it because they will freely rejoice in ascribing more wisdom to those who know more and will just consider it a great privilege that they can actually learn from these people. Can you imagine what learning in a community is going to be like that? That's heaven. Not only a radiant community, but an intelligent community. And what a blessing. What a blessing to those who never learned to read here. We take literacy for granted. How much dignity is conferred when people are taught to read? What a blessing it will be for them. What a blessing for those who never got to go to school because they had to look after younger family members. What joy awaits them in the continual learning in heaven. And then, of course, the main subject matter is God. Like here on earth, when the people that we connect with the most, where we spend time in communication and conversation, where we learn about them and open ourselves to them, those people become sources of joy in our life. What will it be like to be in a relationship with someone who is inexhaustibly beautiful, wise and holy? Father Boudreau, a Christian mystic, made this observation. He said, the life of heaven is one of intellectual pleasure. There the intellect of man receives a supernatural light. It is purified, strengthened and enabled to see God as he is in his very essence. It is enabled to contemplate him who is the essential first truth. It gazes undazzled upon the first infinite beauty, wisdom and goodness. From whom flow all limited wisdom, beauty and goodness found in creatures. Who can fathom the exquisite pleasures of the human intellect when it thus sees all truth as it in itself. If you have ever known the joy of reading a book and finding insight that made you go, wow! I opened, I got my eyes open. You ever said that? Can you imagine that going on forever and ever and ever? These are at least three dimensions of the joy of learning that is awaiting us. But this mention of God as the object of our intellectual pleasure leads me to the, probably the fourth and the quintessential joy of heaven. And that is the worship of God himself. Yeah, in one sense... Thinking of heaven as an unending worship service is boring. Well, that's because what we experience as worship is nothing close to what worship will be like in heaven. So let me talk a little bit about that. All these other joys, three of them that I've tried to illustrate to you, are both overarched and undergirded by this joy of God. The Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' followers, writing to a small group of believers in modern-day Greece, the Philippi, He was in prison anticipating his possible execution by Rome. He said this, I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better by far. He didn't say, I desire to depart to go to heaven which will be better. He said, I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better. The dominating central feature that makes heaven attractive is the presence of the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. And... Uh, In Revelation 22 it says, they will see his face. Throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, periodically we are reminded of the fact that it is impossible for human beings to see the face of God. To have that kind of an intimate encounter. But in heaven, 
in these gloriously new resurrected bodies with whole new faculties. He says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. He will become the thing that illuminates everything else. Not only will we see him, we will see everything by him. I remember the time when our family took its first vacation in Florida. So we drove, like all of us who have little children drive, you know. And by the second night, we got into the top part of Florida. I'd never been there before. Everything was dark. Uh, there were long stretches with no lights, no gas stations. And I was getting scared. I thought, why am I here? I wish, wish I were home. <clears throat> Finally found the motel, got in there. But when I got up the next morning and the sun was shining... That which was so foreboding at night was so joyful during the daytime. Not only did I see the sun, I saw everything by the sun and it was glorious. Something like that will happen in heaven. Not only will we see Jesus face to face, but we will see everything by that light. That's why we don't need any sun and moon. God himself illuminates us and we will see something of that joy. And when we see it, we will know and experience joy. William Dyke was a young lad who became blind at the age of 10. When he was in his early 20s, uh, went to study in graduate school in England, he fell in love with a, be- with a woman and she happened to be the daughter of the British admiral who gave consent to her daughter, his daughter to be married to a blind man, but he said one condition. There is a very risky new surgical procedure on eyes. I would like you to go undergo that. And so William Dyke said, okay, I will. That's what you want me to do to get married to your daughter? I will. Under one condition, that my bandages will only be taken off when I'm actually standing at the altar next to your wife. So they agreed. So the surgery was done. The eyes were all bandaged. The wedding day came. Dyke's father led him up to the front and stood there. And the admiral brought his daughter and stood in front. And so while she got there to the front, Dyke's father went behind him and just totally unraveled the bandages. And when the last bit of gauze was pulled off... The whole place was just absolutely quiet. Was he going to be able to see? Was he going to be able to say? He was speechless. He didn't say anything. And then all of a sudden he said, you're more beautiful than I ever imagined you to be. One day we're going to stand in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Only we'll be the bride, not the groom. And these half-blind, veiled eyes are going to be removed. We will see the bridegroom for the first time in all his beauty and we will say, I never, and you are far more beautiful than I ever imagined you to be. Then we will worship. Then we will worship like we've never worshipped before. And yes, in that sense, heaven will be an unending worship service. You see, I realized that I began thinking about this. So much of what we experience as a worship service here is just shot through with, is wired for failure. Let me tell you why. Here I am preaching. I'm inadequate. I'm imperfect. I'm fallible. We have worship leaders who may show up here not really having put their mind and heart into planning that service. Their personal private lives may have been such as to quench the flow of the spirit that they are mine for that matter. You come in here, you may have had that kind of argument that Tracy and Mirko talked about. You're not sitting here in the best frame of mind. You've left one sick child at home with a babysitter for the first time. You're not quite sure. You're not physically well yourself. And then the worship leader tells you to stand when you didn't feel like standing. When you're standing, he tells you to sit down when you want to remain standing. You want to come to the front in response to what God is saying, but you're afraid of what people are going to think. Or when other people do come to the front, you're looking at them and saying, why all this exhibitionism? 
You don't like the liturgy that's going on this particular. You don't sing the particular song. You don't like the tunes. They're not singable. You don't understand the lyrics. And uh, it's amazing that we can have any worship service at all. <laughs> when you think of all of this, folks. But listen, that's why we think heaven is so boring because that's all we experience. But if you can think back upon those few moments on a Sunday morning when you were transported into heaven by something totally... It could be the benediction, it could be the kind of dance that you saw today. It could be, I, when Andrew plays the trumpet, I'm close to heaven. You know? And the more he improvises, the closer I am to heaven. You know? <laughs> That's just me. I like jazz. I never knew I liked jazz till I was 21 years old. I heard Dave Brubeck for the first time and I said, where have you been all my life? You know? <laughs> But think of those few moments and then imagine that distilled forever and ever. And you will say, boy, I want heaven to be an unending worship service. It will be. You won't even have to try to make it. You'll just look at him and say, my, you're more beautiful than I ever imagined you to be. You're getting some flavor of what the joy of heaven will be like. Well, these are only four things that I've touched on. There's a lot more. That's why I'm using all these quotations to get you to read. It's a perfect blending of nostalgia and novelty because eternity encompasses time. It is a perfect blending of work and rest because you and I in resurrected bodies will be ruling new creation to the glory of God and to the joy of creation. It will be the joy of continual learning in a humble, loving community and will be spontaneous worship in response to His visible glory. So one last question as we wrap up this whole service. How then should we live? What about now? If this is what heaven is, and we've only scratched the surface, How then should we live now? And the Apostle Paul, writing at the end of one of the longest chapters in the Bible that talk about the resurrection of Jesus, says at the end, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's what he wants us to do. In the light of all that we have learned about heaven, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Always and fully are the two words I want to draw to your attention. Because you know, always fully, because you know. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain. Listen, precisely because our resurrected bodies have continuity with these present bodies, precisely because the new heavens and the new earth will have continuity with this physical earth, do you know what? Our work in heaven that will have this amazing blending of work and rest and nostalgia and novelty, that work, has continuity to the work that we are doing here. Victor Hugo was a well-known author and poet, and he said this as he was approaching the end of his life. (laughs) He said, I feel within me that future life. I shall most certainly rise towards the heavens. The nearer my approach to the end, the plainer will be the sound of immortal symphonies of worlds which invite me. For half a century I have been translating my thoughts into prose and verse. History, drama, philosophy, romance, tradition, satire, ode and song. All of these I have tried. But I feel I haven't given utterance to a thousandth part of what lies within me. When I go to the grave I can say as others have said, my day's work is done. But I cannot say my life's work is done. My work will recommence the next morning. The tomb is not a blind alley, it is a thoroughfare. It closes upon the twilight and opens upon the dawn. And you know as I read that I began thinking, wow... (laughs) If, if I live for another 10-15 years, I, I'd have preached for 50 years. And at the end of that, after thousands of sermons, to be able to say, I haven't even begun to give utterance to the thousandth part of what lies within me because of what lies ahead of me. That's true of every one of us, no matter what, what we're doing. 
What we do here, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you haven't even begun to give utterance to a thousandth part. Everything we do here on earth is raw material for our life in heaven. And N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, put it this way. You are accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude and kindness. Every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation. Every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk. Every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. Therefore, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your work is not in vain. That's why Jesus ties joy to service. Well done, good and faithful. Servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Because of this continuity between what we do now and what we will do forever. And that is not only true of our work and our service, it is also true of our suffering. That's why Charlene's testimony has been so appropriately woven in throughout the service. The same Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them. Now, now, sometimes we misunderstand this. I don't think Paul is saying, you know, all this suffering and this trial, bear up under it, because one day the joy of heaven will be so much that you will forget about all this. That's not what he's saying. He's saying your light and momentary afflictions are actually achieving or working a weight of glory. In other words, these things are actually the raw material out of which joy and glory are being fashioned. There's that connection once again, that continuity between earth and between heaven. That's why he says, let's fix our eyes upon heaven. And for me, my personal benefit from studying to preach these three sermons is that I now have something substantial to fix my eyes upon. Now these are the spiritual eyes. These are the eyes of the heart. These are the eyes of the imagination. And only, only God can open it. The Apostle Paul said, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you may know the riches of your inheritance. But at least we have learned in these three sermons. Let us fix our eyes on our resurrected bodies with incomparable beauty, increasingly heightened senses, and a radiant community. We learned that in the first sermon. Let us fix our eyes upon the renewed earth with additional dimensions and you and I ruling and subduing it for the joy of all creation and the glory of God. And then let us fix our eyes upon the joy of heaven, a perfect blending of nostalgia and novelty, a perfect blending of work and rest, and the joy of continual learning in a humble, loving community. And my, my encouragement to you is this. Every time you experience any kind of pleasure on earth, and there are all kinds of things that gives us pleasure on earth. Every time you experience any pleasure on earth, will you just enjoy it and stop long enough to add one more thing? This is just an infinitesimal little reflection of this kind of joy that is waiting for me in heaven. Let us learn and train to fix our eyes upon things that are unseen, not things that are seen. Give yourself, therefore, always and fully to the work of the Lord here. My blessing for you is Paul's prayer to the Ephesians that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. (laughs) 
to be able to see invisible reality just a little bit more clearly because heaven as you know is so close <laughs> and whenever it breaks in upon you may you have eyes to see and time to respond go in jesus name